How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I believe I mentioned at the end of the last show that uh, I recently inherited a surprisingly large comic book collection, and so I've been still having a pretty good time organizing that, inventorying it, reading it, and crouching over it protectively while eating handfuls of instant coffee crystals, whispering, my precious, no one can take my precious. So that's been fun. We got kind of a different format for today's show that might take some explaining. We're going to be getting to know one of the new, new defenders by reading the 1984 miniseries Iceman. Now, Corey's away this week, so we're going to have the help of a brilliant guest co-host, Sarah Century. And since we're covering four comics instead of the usual one, it's a longer conversation. Plus, we've got synopses for four issues instead of one. So, We're going to forego the minutiae segments that are normally at the end. If you pay attention, you can probably still figure out what our favorite panels were, because we talk about a few of them a lot. So, as I said, slightly different format, but I think it's a really good show, and I hope you'll agree with me. So, without any further ado, let's uh, do this. Iceman number one, December. 1984. The Fuse. Written by J.M.D. Mateus, drotted by Alan Cooperberg, inked by Mike Gustavik, lettered by Janice Chiang, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Bob Budiansky. And just to save time, that's gonna be the creative team for this entire series. Defensive lineup Iceman. Our story opens in an anonymous, futuristic-slash-medieval-slash-post-apocalyptic city where everyone is bummed out on account of they keep getting murdered all the time. In a tall tower, the ruler of this city, or dimension, or whatever, a faceless guy in a hooded robe, sits atop his high-tech throne and addresses two of his retainers. He's like, Go get me that person I want you to get for me. One of the flunkies, a tall, skinny alien wearing white future overalls that somehow have shoulder pads, is like, Okay. The ruler guy is like, Because if you don't, I'm going to destroy you or something. The overalls alien is like, Yes, I got that from your tone, and I already said okay. The ruler guy is like, Good. He teleports the overalls alien and his partner, a stout little guy who looks kind of like if a pug dressed up as one of the new gods for Halloween, away so that they can go do his bidding. Meanwhile, in suburban Long Island, the hero of our story, Bobby Drake, a.k.a. Iceman, is zipping around on one of his ice slides. He's in town for his dad's retirement party and is nervous about it for a few reasons. One, 
he's running late. B, his parents disapprove of his superheroic lifestyle and want him to be an accountant. And three, his parents are kind of dicks. Bobby is distracted from his anxiety when he spots his cousin Mary. He swoops down to chat with her. Mary is the only chill person in the extended Drake family and was the first person Bobby confided in that he was a mutant. She's always been kind and supportive of him and has kept his secret. Hmm, almost seems like mutant is a metaphor for something. A mutant metaphor, if you will. Nah, what am I saying? Subtext in a comic book? That's just silly. Bobby cuts his conversation with Mary short because he sees a young woman walking with her family and he wants to show off and performatively hit on her. He does some ice shenanigans to try to impress the lady, but he goofs up and tumbles into her, knocking her to the ground. Oops. The lady freaks out. At her urging, her family flees in terror. A bigoted cop named Ralph Ratchet happens by, and after briefly mistaking Bobby for the Silver Surfer, realizes that he is a mutant, and starts hassling him for that instead. Bobby doesn't feel like putting up with Officer Ratchet's shit, so he freezes him in a block of ice and runs away. Hooray! After jumping over a fence to get a little privacy, Bobby de-ices himself and starts putting on some clothes. An old lady catches him while he's mostly still wearing his silver lame underpants and boots, and thinks that he is stripping in her yard. She yells at him and calls him a pervert. Bobby runs away and again runs into the pretty lady and knocks her to the ground. Oops again. This time, though, he isn't made out of ice. So rather than run away screaming, the lady introduces her family. They are the Smiths. And they make it plain that they are nice people who live in the neighborhood and are perfectly normal in every way. Well, nothing suspicious about that. Although the young woman does not introduce herself, Bobby hears her younger brother call her Marge. Bobby is infatuated with Marge and is drawn to the idea of being in a relationship with the perfectly normal girl next door. He thinks about this as he arrives at his parents' house. When he gets there, his mom is vacuuming an oddly psychedelic rug in preparation for tonight's party. Mr. and Mrs. Drake greet their son warmly, then almost immediately switch gears and start criticizing his appearance and life choices. Meanwhile, at the town's police station, Officer Ratchet is reporting to his superiors when the overalls alien and the anthropomorphic pug from the beginning of the story teleport in. It turns out that the overalls alien is named White Light, and the pug is named The Idiot. Wasn't White Light and The Idiot the name of a 70s Jeff Bridges Clint Eastwood movie? Or was it a Cat Stevens album? In any event, Ratchet starts hassling the newcomers, so White Light hypnotizes him. The idiot wants to murder the prejudiced police officer, but White Light is like, nah, and just wipes his mind instead. It's not much of a mind, so it doesn't take long to wipe. Ratchet wanders off with no memory of the encounter, and White Light and the idiot start tracking their prey. That night at his dad's retirement party, Bobby gets alternately condescended to and berated by his extended family. He sneaks off to have a heart-to-heart -heart with his cousin Mary, but then his parents interrupt him and bring over his cousin Joel to give him a lecture about how he should be an accountant. Bobby starts to sass Joel, but his dad yells at him, so he storms slash sulks off and leaves the party. As he is lost in self-recriminating thoughts, Bobby bumps into Marge and knocks her to the ground. Again. 
He makes a joke, which he has to explain as a joke. Ah, the best kind of joke. Marge explains that she was just going to drop off some brownies for Mr. Drake's party, but Bobby convinces her to go on a date with him instead. Marge agrees. It turns out that Bobby's version of a date is sitting on Marge's porch and talking about himself and complaining about his family while asking absolutely no questions whatsoever about her. The closest Bobby comes in showing any interest in Marge as anything other than a sounding board is when he compliments her by telling her that her family seems very normal. Marge is like, Thank you! We are normal! Very normal. What a normal thing to say. Then White Light and Idiot bust through the roof of the porch and attack them. Bobby ices up and fights the oddly named aliens while Marge runs inside. She gathers her family and hurries them through a magic portal in her younger brother Walter's room. Huh. As the Smiths are making their perfectly normal escape through a perfectly normal magic portal, Bobby's fight with White Light and the Idiot escalates. The Drakes and their party guests hear the commotion and rush outside to see what all the hullabaloo is about, just in time to see their next-door neighbor's house collapse. Bobby manages to seal his attackers in a giant block of ice, but they only stay stuck there for a second before they teleport away. Officer Ratchet shows up in his bathrobe and finds Bobby standing alone in the rubble of what used to be the Smith's suburban house. He gleefully arrests the confused mutant. Iceman number two. February, 1985. Instant karma. Defensive lineup. Iceman. Back in their nightmarish extra-dimensional hometown, White Light and the idiot's mysterious boss is pissed at them. He makes a gesture, and the two weirdos shriek in pain as they dissolve into nothingness. See, this is why we need unions. The hooded potentate gestures again and summons a big metal person with four arms and a voluminous topknot. He's like, Kali, go finish the job that White Light and the idiot fucked up. Okay? Kali is like, You got it, boss. They jump on a giant flying spider and zoom off. Meanwhile, in suburban Long Island, Iceman is at the police station, using his government ties as a new defender to get out of trouble. He makes up a story about being attacked by communists, and the cops are like, Oh, communists. Yeah, that sounds plausible. Those guys are always wearing overalls with shoulder pads and wrecking houses. Fucking communists. As Bobby leaves, Ralph Ratchet hassles him again. But Bobby is not in the mood, and zaps Ralph in the face with an ice blast. Hooray! The frost-flinging former accountant school attendee heads back to his parents' house. On his way, he swings by the wreckage of the Smith house and finds a high-tech alien cube amongst the wreckage. He takes it home with him. Good thinking, Bobby. If we've learned nothing else from the Hellraiser movies, it's that playing with fancy mysterious cubes is totally harmless and a great idea. He sneaks in through his window and is confronted by his parents, who are pissed off at him for ruining his dad's party and also generally existing. They yell at him for embarrassing them in front of the family and for being a disappointment and not normal like them. Bobby's dad storms off. Bobby tries to follow and defend himself against his dad's accusations, but his mom stops him and is like, Leave him alone. If you piss him off anymore, he might have a heart attack and die. Is that what you want? To kill your father? Anyway, there's fresh towels in the linen closet. Good night. 
Please don't kill your father. Bobby is understandably disturbed by this interaction. He sits on his bed under a giant poster of John Lennon and thinks fondly about the last time he felt like his parents loved him. It was when he was three years old. Yikes. As he fondly reminisces about being a toddler, the mysterious cube he found starts vibrating. Suddenly, both he and it disappear from the bedroom. Meanwhile, or I guess technically not meanwhile because it's almost a hundred years previous, but narratively concurrent, uh, Elsewhen, yeah, let's go with Elsewhen. Elsewhen, somewhere in what we are told is 1892 England, Marge and her family are hanging out in their thatched roof cottage doing some chores. Suddenly, a klaxon sounds, and the wall slides open to reveal a huge computer monitor. Walter pokes some buttons, and an image appears on screen of Bobby Drake, screaming as he tumbles through multicolored extra dimensional space. Walter is like, Looks like you must have found that bounce box we accidentally left behind, huh? Marge agrees that that does indeed seem to be the case. Her dad is like, Well, he seems like a nice young man, and he did help you out by fighting White Light and the Idiot for you. Seems like you should rescue him, huh? Marge is like, No, it's too dangerous. Her mom is like, Still, you should do something. Marge cuts her off and is like, Nope. Now shut up or I'll unmake all of you and you'll cease to exist. The family is visibly upset by this possibility and backs down instantly, returning to their chores. Fifty years later, Bobby finishes tumbling and lands on his ass in 1940s New York. Clutching the mysterious bounce box to his chest, he stumbles around for a bit and tries to get his bearings. As he peruses the headlines about World War II at a local newspaper stand, a cop starts hassling him. It's Ralph Ratchet's dad, Hunts Ratchet. Overwhelmed and disoriented, our time-tossed hero ices up and starts to zoom away. Unfortunately, Hunts is every bit the asshole that his son Ralph is. The senior officer Ratchet draws his gun and starts shooting at the fleeing mutant. Shitty. A bullet hits Bobby's arm and he falls to the ground and passes out from the pain. Fortunately, a nice young couple stumbles across the half-naked young man and drags him to their nearby apartment. Why, it's the younger version of Bobby's parents, Willie and Madeline McFly. I, I mean, Drake. When Marty, I mean Bobby, wakes up, he's confused because A, his parents are so young, and 2, they aren't constantly berating him. Willie Drake gives a little speech about how his dad's a dick who doesn't love him because he can't enlist in the army because of a heart condition. Bobby is like, wow, must suck to have a father who resents you because of how you were born, huh? Willie is like, it sure does. Anyway, that's why I help strangers like you if I can, to prove to myself that I'm not the worthless piece of shit my dad thinks I am. Now, go get some rest. Bobby watches the Drakes interact and thinks how weird it is to see them as people instead of his parents. Then Kali bursts through the wall on their giant flying spider and attacks him. Bobby ices himself up and defends his terrified parents from the attack. He leads Kali away from the apartment, but he seems to be overmatched by his four-armed foe. Kali is like, I'm pretty sure that you aren't the person I'm looking for, but maybe you can tell me where they are or I can just kill you. Honestly, I'm fine either way. 
Kali uses all of his arms to give Iceman a kind of double bear hug and starts squeezing the life out of him, when suddenly, Willie Drake runs up and tosses the magic cube to Bobby. Willie is like, Hey there, sport! Will this thing help you out? Bobby is like, I don't know, maybe. Thanks. But before Bobby can figure out how to activate the mysterious device, one of Kali's minions snatches Willie up and tosses him off a roof. Bobby breaks free and manages to catch his dad before he hits the sidewalk. Suddenly, Marge's giant disembodied head appears in the sky and is like, Hey Callie, it's me you want. Leave these people alone and come get me. Kali flies away in search of Marge. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because it seems that the excitement of the tussle was too much for Willie Drake's faulty ticker. Just before he dies of a heart attack, Bobby's future father turns to the man he doesn't realize his son and is like, Well, at least I was able to save you. I died a hero. Then he dies. Madeline Drake turns to the man she does not know is her future son and is like, This is your fault. You killed him. We were going to get married and have a kid who we would totally be nice to and not berate. But now he's dead. Bobby turns away, overwhelmed with guilt and shame. He thinks to himself, I just fuck everything up. I wish I was never born. Well, good news, Bobby. Seeing as your dad just died before you were conceived, you get your wish. With a horrified look on his face, our newly paradoxical protagonist fades from existence. Iceman, number three, April, 1985. Quicksand. Defensive lineup. Iceman. And then there's hallucinations about a bunch of other superheroes, like the original X-Men, the Champions, and the New Defenders, but I don't think that counts. Iceman tumbles through the nothingness of non-existence. At first, it's a pitch-black void, but then he starts having a dream or a vision or a hallucination or something. He's a grown man hanging out in a crib. Then his parents start doting on him and he turns into a baby. His mom picks him up and dances around with him, until his mutant powers kick in and he turns her to ice and she shatters into a million pieces. Then his dad yells at him and demands that he run off and become an accountant immediately. Even though he's a toddler, he does as he's told, but on his way to accountant school, he runs into Professor X, who tells him to be a superhero instead. Then an angry faceless horde yells at him and calls him a mutant. The OG X-Men show up for a second, but then they all go away and his parents come back and tell him to be an accountant again. He starts to obey them again, but then his other old team, the Champions, show up and tell him to be a superhero again. A lady named Darkstar is like, You are capitalist scum accountant that I do not love you. Good to know. Bobby starts studying to be an accountant again, and now his parents love him. Only he hates studying to be an accountant. Then the new Defender show up and tell him to be a superhero again. Only he says he's not ready, so they make fun of him and beat him up a little. The vision or dream or whatever ends. Iceman finds himself lying at the feet of the mysterious ruler of that city filled with the temporal hodgepodge of depressing shittiness from the opening pages of the series. The anonymous adversary looks a little different now. He has huge muscly arms. His glowing eyes pierce through the dark emptiness that lies beneath a purple hood. He is draped in a pink and purple robe and scarf wraps around the void where his neck and chin would be, and a belt of demon skulls encircles his waist. Basically, he looks like if Rob Leefield did a character redesign of Orko. 
The beefy Orko man introduces himself as Oblivion, and explains that not only is he the embodiment of non-existence, but that he is the ruler of this kingdom of things that never were. It's kind of weird that the place seems to be made up of only the shitty stuff that doesn't exist, but whatever. Oblivion goes on to tell Bobby that now that he was never born, this is his new home. Bobby doesn't seem too stoked about that. Oblivion is like, Well, maybe we can do something about that. See, here's the thing. My siblings, death, love, and eternity, all have hobbies or partners or something. But I don't have shit. I mean, I rule this liminal space between heaven and hell, death and rebirth, but as you can see, it fucking sucks here. So, I made myself a child. Only she ran away. You know her as Marge. Bobby is like, Marge is your daughter? But you sent all those monsters after her to kill her. Oblivion is like, Oh, they were just supposed to bring her back here. They couldn't hurt her if they wanted to. They aren't powerful enough. Look what she did to Kali. Bobby looks slightly to his left and sees that the once formidable four-armed fiend that he recently battled is lying on the floor, a broken heap of a being gibbering mindlessly to themselves. Oblivion is like, I know, right? So here's the deal. Marge seems to like you, so I want you to bring her back here for me. If you do, I'll unkill your dad, and you can start existing again. Deal? Before Bobby even has a chance to answer, he finds himself standing in an idealized version of a small town in Middle America. He stumbles around in a daze for a second. Then, a familiar voice calls out to him from the sidewalk. It's Marge's little brother, Walter. Walter is like, Bobby! Boy, will Marge be happy to see you! You gotta come home and have dinner with us! Still a little out of it, Bobby allows himself to be led to the Smith house, where he is greeted warmly. Marge runs up and gives him a big hug, and is like, I'm so glad you're here. Now everything is just perfect. They sit down to dinner and say grace. After the meal, Bobby and Marge go out onto the porch and talk. Bobby tells Marge all about his recent adventures and his encounter with Oblivion. When he finishes, he's like, Why didn't you tell me what you were? Marge is like, Don't worry about it. Everything's fine now. We're together and in love, so nothing else matters. Forget about Oblivion. Bobby's like, Pretty sure I can't do that, seeing as I'm not sure I exist right now, and he kinda murdered my dad. Please just go back and talk to him. Marge is like, What? No way! I don't belong there. I belong here with my family and you in this totally normal bucolic town I created. Walter and the rest of the Smiths have been eavesdropping. They come out onto the porch, and Walter is like, No, Bobby's right. You can't keep running from who you are. It's time to go home. That's not what Marge is trying to hear. She freaks out and is like, Oh yeah? Sounds like somebody's tired of existing, huh? She concentrates for a second, and suddenly, her entire family is reduced to a smoking pile of ash. Dang. Marge is like, I went through a lot of trouble to make this nice, perfectly normal town for us to live in, but if you're gonna be a fucking ingrate, then I'll just uncreate it and everything else around here. Is that what you want, Bobby? Bobby is like, uh, not really? Marge is like, well, too fucking bad. 
She starts unmaking all of the people, buildings, and landscape. Bobby is like, you are just like your father. This pisses Marge off even more. She grows to be several stories tall and is like, I am nothing like him. I am not oblivion. I am his daughter, Mirage, and I'll uncreate you just like I did everything else. Bobby is like, nuh-uh, you can't uncreate me because I'm kinda sorta real, I think. He concentrates just as hard as he can on not wanting to be unmade. Marge squints for a second, then shrinks down to regular size, and is like, Sorry about that. I'm trying to control myself and stay Marge, but I keep turning back into what he wants me to be. Mirage, which I am again now, and now I'm going to kill you. Sorry, only no, no, I'm not. Mirage dukes it out both with her inner nature and with Bobby for a couple of pages. Eventually, her darker impulses prevail, and she zaps Bobby with a bolt of nothingness so powerful that it seemingly kills him. Well, shit. This act of destruction jolts her out of it. Marge gathers Bobby's body in her arms and is like, This is your fault, Oblivion. I'm coming home to kick your ass. She teleports herself and Bobby, who I guess is not totally dead after all, back to Oblivion's realm. But Buff Orko is waiting for her. He stands there all menacing and is like, No, daughter, it is your ass which will be kicked. By me, Oblivion! Iceman, number four, June 1985. The price you pay. Defensive lineup, Iceman! And Beast and Angel a little bit at the end. Oblivion sends a bunch of visions into Bobby's brain, showing him just how much it sucks to live in this shitty realm of unpleasant nothingness. He caps it off by saying, And if you think that sucks, try being this shitty realm of unpleasant nothingness. Then he turns to Mirage and is like, Welcome home, daughter. Now we can be together forever. Mirage is like, But I don't wanna. I wanna do my own thing. That's why I ran away. This leads to a recap of the events of the past three issues. Being forced to revisit this complicated nonsense is more than Bobby can bear. I hear you, buddy. He ices up and attacks Oblivion, while delivering a long diatribe about how he's tired of not being confident, and now he's going to be confident, and also good at making stuff out of ice. Oblivion is taken aback for a second. Then he's like, Silly Bobby, you can't fight me, I'm everything. I mean, I'm nothing, but I'm also lots of stuff. I mean, I'm me, I'm my daughter, I'm this place, I'm also all of my underlings. Oblivion transforms himself into White Light and the Idiot. So Bobby beats up White Light and the Idiot. Then Oblivion turns into Kali. So Bobby beats up Kali. As she watches this battle, Marge is growing increasingly distressed. Oblivion resumes his original form, and Bobby renews his assault, giving a little speech about how great his parents are and how much they love him. Uh, Bobby? Have you been reading the same comics as me? Oblivion is overwhelmed by Bobby's filial piety and the savagery of his icy attacks. He collapses to the ground. When this happens, Marge loses her shit. 
She yells at Bobby and is like, You leave my dad alone! He may be the anthropomorphic embodiment of nothingness and a total asshole, but he's still my dad! And also me! And also... My mate! Gross. This end-of-Chinatown-esque revelation has a curious effect on Marge slash Mirage. Her appearance changes until she looks exactly like Oblivion, only with breasts. Bobby is like, fucking seriously? Oblivion, who is suddenly recovered from Bobby's attack, is like, yup. He reaches out with one beefy arm and does the predator handshake with his daughter slash self slash wife, I guess? Mirage is like, I get it now. This has all been part of the endless cycle of entropy that we're all locked in throughout eternity. I had to think I was Marge and run away from you slash me so that I could return and re-become myself slash you. Neat. Oblivion is like, yup. Bobby is like, ah, dang, I thought you loved me, Marge. Mirage is like, nope, I was just a little mixed up. Now just relax and let my dad slash self slash mate unmake you, okay? Oblivion picks up Bobby and drops him into the nothingness that lies beneath his cowl. He's like, well, that's that. Only that isn't that. Because a few seconds later, he's like, whoa, that kid's still existing. He's existing as hard as he can. What the heck? Turns out Bobby is swimming around inside of the void of Oblivion's head and thinking about, one, the fact that Oblivion promised him that if he brought Marge back, he'd unkill Willie Drake, and B, how dang much he loves his shitty parents. Bobby is like, love is the freaking best, as he jumps out of Oblivion's head. Mirage is like, dad, are you okay? Oblivion's like, I'm better than okay. This icy little fuck just reminded me that love is nice. Mirage is like, oh, uh, okay. Oblivion is like, Bobby, I can't unkill your dad. Probably I shouldn't have said that I could. That's on me. But I can make you a new reality where you never went back in time and he didn't get killed. And maybe that's the real reality and the other one isn't. Who's to say? It's all part of a complicated metaphor about rivers and time and shit. Bobby is like, uh, oh, okay. Oblivion and Mirage slow dance together and maybe make out and eventually merge into a single entity or non-entity as the case might be. Then Bobby wakes up on his bed. It's still the night of his dad's party. It was all a dream. Or was it? Bobby runs downstairs, hugs his mom and dad, and is like, You're alive! Hooray! Willie is like, Are you making fun of me for being so old? Bobby is like, no, I just went on a complicated journey of self-discovery that I'm not going to elaborate on. The upside is, I love you, and I'm sorry that we ever fight, and I'm not going to be an accountant, I'm going to be a superhero and start believing in myself, but I am going to stay in school. Bobby's dad is like, well, your mother and I think that's neat, and we're never going to be jerks again. And they never were. Just kidding. Then, B 
Beast and Angel show up and tell Bobby that they need his help saving the world. Bobby's mom is like, Have fun saving the world. Do you think you'll ever tell us what the fuck happened tonight? Bobby is like, Probably not. Goodbye! The end. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, is off on an interdimensional journey of self-discovery. I assume he'll be able to defeat whatever avatar of non-existence he encounters slash falls in love with, and be <laughs> back next week. In the meantime, we are lucky enough to be joined by Sarah Century. Sarah is a podcaster, one of the now three hosts of Bitches on Comics, an excellent podcast. She is also a writer, an artist, an editor, a publishing magnate, a bon vivante, <laughs> raconteur, a friend to all small animals, and most importantly, a goddamn delight. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, 3P, here I am again, times three, third episode. Couldn't be happier to have you, and couldn't think of anybody that I would rather discuss Bobby Drake with. Yes. Nobody ever asked me about Bobby because I think that they know. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, she'll talk for like three hours if we say the word Bobby at all, right? And it's just like, yes, I will. <laughs> You've got it. That's what I'm hoping for, because otherwise we will have to discuss the narrative of the comic series <laughs> that we just read. And oh, boy. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> yeah, what did just happen? It is kind of a dream sequence. It's like there is a dream sequence in the comic, mm -hmm. but I am kind of convinced that the entire comic is actually a dream sequence. And then the dream sequence might be the only real thing that happens. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, smoked a bunch of weed before I came on this podcast. Just kidding. <laughs> I think that's the right frame of mind to approach this in. <laughs> I actually read an interview or a piece of an interview with J.M. DeMatteis where he talked about the fact that when he was 17, he had a consciousness-altering experience, which <laughs> got him to get super into Hindu mysticism. And I think this issue is in some ways maybe a recreation of that. It's tough for me to parse because my own consciousness altering experience when i was 17 led me in a very different direction and <laughs> led, led me to believe that uh well mostly you should not buy acid in a rave parking lot and also ambulances are super expensive yeah but yeah it was really really hard to tell what was going on with the narrative of this comic the main thing that it reminded me of is have you read any philip k dick oh yeah for sure I read a book of his called The Unteleported Man, and the first, like, two-thirds of the book is setting up this pretty interesting, like, science fiction-y, little bit psychedelic story that has a lot of corporate intrigue and stuff in it. And I got pretty invested in the narrative, and then about at the two-thirds mark, the protagonist of the book, and I would assume the author, just dropped a ton of acid <laughs> and then just had musings about the nature of reality for the rest of the book and Great. that is what this issue reminded <laughs> me of or not this issue this series reminded me of really more than anything 
Yeah, it's like a cloud of weed smoke and then like the sitar <laughs> from Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles starts playing and uh-huh. just like, oh man. <laughs> and then at the same time you're dealing with family drama. So, oh mm-hmm. no, like clashing worlds. Uh, also just the the art style in it. It's Alan Cooperberg's art with Mike Gustavich inks. And so it has a much more cartoony style than I'm used to seeing from Defenders comics, especially recently. And so, I don't know, the combination of that and that my first exposure to Iceman was from Spider-Man and his amazing friends when I was a kid made it seem like it was, I don't know, like Grant Morrison adapting a Philip K. Dick short story into a screenplay for an episode of the pirates of dark water or something like that. yeah i get exactly what you're saying that's like totally how it reads kind of it's got this filmation almost quality to it yeah both in terms of what the art looks like and the fact that for me at least alan cooperberg's art doesn't necessarily flow intuitively from panel to panel as much as i wish that it did and mm-hmm. so there's almost a choppiness to the movement that Reminds me of like old filmation cartoons. So it, it was just a very unique experience. <laughs> yes, it was. I think that exactly everything you're saying can be summed up just by the cover of issue one, which has a really neat logo for Iceman. Like I love the logo for this book mm-hmm. because it's kind of Iceman, but then it has ice doing like a 3D thing. So there's a bunch of ice behind the font Mm -hmm. and it has Iceman, big smile on his face, kind of goofy supervillains in the background. And the caption says, he's young, he's on his own. He's out for a good time and he's in more trouble than ever. And you're just like, this is like a sitcom that you think you're walking into. The reading experience is not like a sitcom. <laughs> no. I think the first issue is almost Kinda, that. Yeah. And then there's a real bait and switch that happens. And, and last time you were on the show, we talked about the final issue of the A Lonely Place for Dying run of Batman. And with those, I felt like if you read them all as a whole, it was a much better experience. And with these, I feel like it honestly works better if you read them one at a time and think of them kind of separate from one another, because <laughs> the whole seems to be almost less than the sum of its parts. In That's this right. Series. Yeah, there's all these kind of starts and stops with it, right? Where you're like, oh, I guess I'm over here now. And then you're like, oh, dang, I'm over there. Yeah. But before we get any further into just talking about the series as a whole, let's talk about Iceman. What was your first exposure to the character Iceman, and what did you think of him then? Oh yeah, I was thinking about this earlier. So I started reading X-Men in the early 90s. So I believe that the first time I read Bobby Drake specifically in a story is the one where Emma Frost is an issue of Uncanny X-Men in the 300 somewhere. It might be like 318 or something. I don't remember the exact number, but she takes over his body, right? Because she's been comatose. No, was this before the Failing Saga? I don't know. Uh, X-Men. Yeah, X-Men, who knows? 
it's like an endless present, right? Not necessarily something we can talk about linear style, but there mm-hmm. is this issue where she is in a coma. She takes over his body and she can do so many things with his body that he could never do, right? Obviously, there's a lot of questions behind this. Not great to take over Bobby's body, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But the point is, is, is that when she is in his body, she is able to use his powers in ways that we have never seen him do. In this series, what do we see? Ice slides. That's Mm -hmm. it. He's not doing anything creative. And so it's a wild issue because when people talk about, obviously, I'm of the group that believes that there was a lot of foreshadowing to Iceman coming out eventually. Some people say that there wasn't. I say there for sure was. And I think that part of my argument might be based in the fact that the first comic that I read was such an allegory for him being a queer person because Mm. it's like there's a part of himself that he can't access right and there's there's like a part of himself that he's holding his own self back he's holding himself from being who he wants to be and who he can be because Mm. he's scared and like that's the whole issue (laughs) like (laughs) literally that's what emma says to him at the end where she's like i don't know why you couldn't do it because he's like how did you do it and she's just like you can do it it was you like I only was there. (laughs) This is your body. Like, I can't make you be more powerful. Like, you have this power. Right. You're terrified of yourself. Mike's secret stuff was just water the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. That is when I first found out about Bobby. And then through the next several issues, he ends up going on a road trip with Rogue where he is a very supportive friend to her. Like, I'm sure because it's the 90s, there had to have been some kind of, like, romantic tension subplot. But I just remember it as he was just trying to be a supportive guy to his, like, bud. Right. And they have always had a really good friendship. So, to me, I was always very much team Bobby. The times when I don't like Bobby is whenever he's terrible to women, basically. But... Whenever he's just kind of being buds with people, like there's an issue where he goes shopping with Jean Grey and he's like, yeah, all men hate shopping, Jean. I hate this. And he's like, oh, my God, look at that jacket. Like, (laughs) It's just like that's subtext. But like, you know, the whole thing is like he was just a good bud to a lot of the women on the team during the era that I was reading. And it completely informed me about this character going forward. So it's like. When you go back and you read him as being kind of like the beast boy of the X-Men or something. Absolutely. Like so aggressive to women. It always just kind of doesn't scan, but it does to me because it's like he's clearly trying to overcompensate all of the time, right? Right. He's putting on a show. This series, it's all over that. But yeah, that was my first Iceman stories. I remember seeing him in like Mutant X and Age of Apocalypse. So a lot of like the reality bending things mm-hmm. in those. He's like very powerful, but you can see that he's kind of taken like a moodier turn. And there was always this image that I had of Bobby as being overall kind of an unhappy person who mm-hmm. is 
always kind of lost, I guess, and kind of trying to attach himself to like a a group because the group helps him know what to do. And he talks about that a lot in this issue. But you said that the first time you were introduced to him was super friends. So I can't imagine having a a more different introduction (laughs) to a character. It was really different. There was honestly probably a time where I would have described Iceman as my favorite superhero and that's kind of come full circle to where i really do like how he's being written now but when i was a kid that was a very different bobby the spider-man and his amazing friends Iceman. in that series he was basically just a slightly more fun slightly less responsible spider-man i liked him because he had an interesting power he looked cool and he came the closest to having a personality on that show and Mm -hmm. that wasn't terribly close But then when I started encountering the comic book version of Iceman, it was, I think, initially reading old issues of The Champions and then the really early issues of X Factor and kind of skipping around between those and then reading the original X-Men stuff. And between all that stuff and the new Defenders, what I think kind of typified him as a character to me was that he seemed to be a character that no writer really seemed to know quite what to do with. Mm -hmm. Like, in the early X-Men stuff, he definitely comes across as almost a Beast Boy slash Human Torch hybrid, where the entirety of his personality seems to basically be that he's a few years younger than the rest of the team. And then once he gets older and is in the Champions... I don't know, like, there is a pretty distinct difference between, like, 14 and 17. Uh, Like, that. that is, like, I don't know, close enough to be considered a personality trait, I guess. But when it's the difference between, like, 22 and 25, that's a little bit less pronounced. And then once he gets to just be regular grown-up, like, oh, you're 31, I'm 33. Yeah. They don't have that hook to put on him. He had been kind of the fun-loving one, and they were terrible jokes because they were written by Stan Lee, but the jokester (laughs) of the group. And by the time he joins the Defenders, you have Beast filling that role. So he just kind of seemed the odd man out. And then on the Champions, he was... And again, I think this kind of ties into where you were seeing the character and where he ended up and where you really see them starting to take him in this series was that he is indecisive and wants to live what he thinks is a normal life. With no context for what that actually means, right? Yes, That's what's wild about him. Like, that's why he's like, what's the most straight-laced middle American thing you can be? Accountant? Okay, I'll be that. But I don't really want to be that. He tries to do it, and he's bored out of his mind. And Mm -hmm. you're just like, that's because... Right. It's boring. Like, you have been a superhero since you were, like, 13 years old. So, of course. And there's always going to be something different about you. You just want everybody to like you. And that's not ever going to be the case, right? Like, you can't make that happen. And the more you try, the more alienating you are, you know? And I think that there is... Something really interesting about him for all of those reasons. He always strikes me as being a very fascinating character. And I love Bobby. Like, I think he's a really fun character, especially because now you have the ability that you can put him in almost any kind of story. As you were saying, people really didn't know what to do with him for a long time. And now 
it's like, do you need a fun guy? Because we can have the fun guy. But do you need somebody to have like a kind of depressive episode talking about how he doesn't know where he fits in in the world? He can do that too. You know, do you want a love story with Christian Frost? Great. <laughs> you know, he can kind of do everything now. He's a character where coming out like helped him so much because it's like now you see how he is kind of a more complete person. mentioned his coming out. Would you mind talking a little bit about how that process went and how you think that was handled? Sure. So it's Jean Grey. He's being a jerk to women again. <laughs> and he's just like, well, I don't see why everybody's into Jean or something. And she's like, yeah, no kidding, because you're gay. <laughs> and <laughs> she definitely is a little bit aggressive. <laughs> I'm going to say a lot of bit aggressive. People like to refer to that as she uses her psychic powers, but I think she can just tell that Bobby's gay. Like, we've all had friends like that, right? Where you're mm -hmm. just like, here in five years, hopefully you'll be out. <laughs> and like, <laughs> we won't have to deal with this weird defensive aggressiveness. Like, you know, like, more power to you if you are still in the closet or anything, you know? It's like, it's not a judgment call, but it's definitely like... There are some people who are just like, you can see them holding themselves back because of this thing. And I feel like that's what Jean saw in Bobby. But also she was probably just sick of him talking to women the way that he does, because that would like drive me up the wall. But also, yes, she was truly awful. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those moments where you're just like... If people talk about like the bi erasure thing, then like usually this is where they point. He says, maybe I'm bi. And she says, I think that you're not. And that is what a lot of people will be like, oh, she's like gaslighting him. And I'm like, yeah, and or she has eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's kind of how I feel about it. But that's the thing is, is like, that scene is forever going to have a bunch of people commenting on it. And there's going to be people who completely disagree with everything I just said. And I think that that's absolutely fine. I am a lesbian, like a cis lesbian. So like whatever I just said, that's the perspective I'm coming from. So <laughs> the fact that I think that Bobby is not bi, maybe it's informed by that. Who knows? But I will say that a lot of people who identify with Bobby as he is now don't like how that scene played out. But he also has time later to call her out about it, which he does. He's just like, look, maybe I just wasn't ready yet. Why did you have to do it that way? You could have like at least been a little bit gentler. And she's like, okay, you are correct about that. <laughs> she's Jean Grey. She's never been gentle about anything in her life, right? But that's kind of the thing is him coming out was crucial. Like it needed to happen. We have a completely different character now, but we also have a much better character now. <laughs> and it's great that that occurred. That was something that writers were trying to do forever, at least as far back as Marjorie Lou's X-Men. But I would argue that even as far as J.M. DiMatteis's Defenders, because there is a lot of stuff in these issues where you're just like, he comes across as a gay person. Yeah. So the fact that him being closeted, him being unable to live up to his potential, all of this was such a thing for so long, they had to do something with that. So yes, there's room to improve. Knowing these characters as I know them, I'm not surprised how that scene played out. I don't think that it's against their character whatsoever. I know that 
as a teenager, I'm sure that like you say things that are like not that sensitive, right? <laughs> so right. there's a lot of things that make sense to me about the scene. As it stands, I'm glad that the scene happened. I think it completely catapulted that character into his next phase. Everything now is great. Like I love everything that he's doing. You touched on the fact that teenagers say things like that. That initially happened with the teenage versions of the characters who were brought into the future through time travel. Is that yep. right? Okay. <laughs> Again, X-Men. Um, having a coming out story that involves time travel and telepathy potentially is a very, very X-Men move. Yeah. I'm really glad that Bobby is out of the closet now. And I think it is a thing that makes a ton of sense for his character. And I think that since then, he has been handled really, really well. He is, I think it's probably pretty safe to say, the most high-profile gay male X-Men, possibly yeah, superhero. So. Yeah, because he is like one of the O5, so. Right. The other big coming out story that I remember Marvel doing was uh, North Star. Oh, yeah. Which I remember at the time there being a lot of eye rolling about the lack of nuance in that story. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, as both a Teen Titans fan and a human being with a soul, I am loath to defend anything that Scott Lobdell has ever done. True. But I do think yelling I am gay at the top of your lungs while <laughs> punching out a cop is pretty fucking badass, and I wish <laughs> more superheroes would do that. <laughs> I wish that that was my coming out story. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go back in time and make that happen. Yeah, I don't know. It, coming out stories are rough. It's not always going to be easy. It's also something that's under massive amounts of scrutiny, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like, of course... It's never going to be the perfect one. And the way that all of that played out, it's definitely there's room for criticism. But if you dismissed everything that was going forward because you didn't like how that scene played out, that sucks. Like, you know, for you, <laughs> because you want to be here for like what's going on, because I think that it solved a major problem with this character. So not only was it important for queer people, but it's like even from a creative or a fan perspective in general, it solved major problems that had just been plaguing this character for his entire existence. Mm -hmm. And it made him to where he can move forward. He can be more interesting. He does more interesting things with his powers now. And you just get the sense that he's a little bit more at peace, which I think for the Krakoa era was like really honestly where he needed to be. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think he highlights as a character too one of the real strengths of the genre, which is that superhero comics are essentially fan fiction like they are yeah. well curated hopefully well curated but curated at any rate by corporations fan fiction but you are taking all of the elements that previous writers have set up and taking the pieces that resonate with you and highlighting those aspects of the character and where Iceman is a guy who has been in some cases mishandled but in any event handled very differently by a lot of different writers, they have inadvertently created a very complicated character that you can do so many different things with. And I think that really is a strength of him, and I really like what they have done with him. For a while, him being in the closet was an interesting story, you know? 
Yeah. I guess that's what we'll talk about a lot today, because he's yeah. very in the closet in this story. Do you think this storyline is where a lot of the intentional subtext with the character kind of starts? I think that maybe in Defenders, too, because there's a bunch of stuff with Cloud that I think you're not quite to, but you're going to get to right. pretty soon. Yes. And uh, spoiler, basically, I, I want Corey to read it as it comes out. Corey, if you're listening, stop listening for five minutes. He doesn't yeah. listen, though. <laughs> but no, not necessarily him being drawn to Cloud, but his reaction Yes. When he finds out about Cloud's nature, it's tempting to call Cloud non-binary, but I mean, they essentially are a binary. (laughs) It's just they they switch between the two. It's complicated. J.M. DeMatteis does some very odd things in terms of genderqueer stuff. I think that this is like where we were at at the time for, I mean, I to me, it's like, I know that people have written about this that would have better things to say about it, because to me, I'll read stuff like this and I'm like, yeah, that is odd <laughs> that it's like, because it can only still be a binary. That's like the thing right. with a lot of like the gender play stuff that happens around this era is like, there's no real concept of it just not that not being a thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why Cloud, like, doesn't always hold up. Like, you look back on a lot of the stuff and you're like, that's extremely weird. Like, <laughs> you know, I think that you're trying to ha- make a non-binary character, but you're just, like, not there, right? Right, like, Clippy pops up and it's just like, it sounds like you're trying to make a non-binary character. <laughs> yeah, and, like, not quite doing it, but okay. But also at the same time, it's as we were talking a little bit, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, this was basically what they were getting away with at that time. And you read the Defenders and you're like, I'm actually really shocked that they got yeah. away with a lot of this stuff. Well, and Cloud isn't even the first character that has played with that idea because you do have, I don't know what the official character name is, but we've been referring to them as Overmindy. But whoever is hanging out in Overmind's body, the dominant personality is Mindy, Nighthawk's ex-girlfriend. And then there's like 12 people that are living in their brain. But there are some like really interesting things that are happening with that. And that is something that J.M. DeMatteis plays with a lot in his books with varying degrees of success, I think. I have heard a lot about but have not actually read the Doctor Fate miniseries, which has a... I don't know. Uh, We can maybe get into that a little bit more (laughs) later, because I think there are some parallels between what's happening in that and with the character Oblivion, who we meet in this, in terms of, I don't know, weird incest-adjacent time-traveling mysticism stuff that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But I don't know. They're ideas that get played with a lot by DeMatteis, at any rate. Especially around this time, yeah. When I look back at the new Defenders, I'm like, this is truly a very queer comic, and I can't speak to what it was going on creatively at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea what their intentions were, but whenever I read it, I'm like, yep, Dragon <laughs> is bisexual, Valkyrie's bisexual, Angel's bisexual, <laughs> Bobby's gay. Right. It's kind of like that. I think... Claremont gets a lot of, depending on who you ask, credit or acknowledgement for doing a lot of queer subtext in his work. 
I feel like Bobby's queer subtext is really different because it's not based on the idea of, oh, these two people are clearly in a relationship that right. we can't acknowledge. It is more based on how he identifies himself and how he thinks of himself. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It is like that. Because <laughs> Claremont is always like, someone was just so horny for another person. And mm -hmm. and also, they're all wearing bondage gear all the time. Are. And here's some uh, some awkward Native American tropes that we'll put yes, in, too. That can't, you cannot leave that out if you are Chris Claremont in the 80s. <laughs> right. Now you can leave it out all of the time, actually. <laughs> but yeah, Iceman is an interesting one. That's the thing that I love, though, is I love to have these complicated views of queer characters because I think that sometimes people want all queer characters to be really respectable. And I like it whenever a character really has to struggle with something because it's like a lot of times people will boil it down to like, and then I came out to my parents, were they accepting or not? You know, I accepted myself like kind of journey and it's like yeah but there's like a lot of different experiences that aren't necessarily encapsulated in that story so mm -hmm. i like that Iceman's parents are terrible <laughs> yeah because i had parents that were rough so it's kind of one of those things where you're just like a lot of people really did deal with a lot of homophobia and a lot of people do deal with a lot of homophobia and sometimes that is internalized and so i think this story, a lot of the Defender stuff, because he's awful to Cloud. Like, that's, like, spoiler alert, right. but, like, he's terrible to Cloud. Like, once he finds out about gender <laughs> being not what he thought, then it is, like, he feels a license to just be, like, really aggressive to Cloud. And that is wild to me because it speaks so much to his own self-hatred, right? right? So I think that that's fascinating. I don't think, oh, I want to hang out with Bobby <laughs> like no. when he's in this mood. But it's like you also see him act like that and you're like, I think there's been times that I've been reactionary. Like, you know, I, I see people being reactionary in that way. So it's something that I feel like it's good to address it in a comic. Yeah, and that kind of messiness that the character has makes him seem more human in a way that, I don't know, with a lot of times with issues of representation, you get into this exoticization of these characters in a way that, in, in seeking to elevate them, kind of dehumanizes them. And you don't have that with Bobby. He is complicated. He is kind of a mess in a lot of ways. But despite being a mutant, he is very, very human. Yeah, I never question who he is as a person. Like, that's kind of the thing, too, is, you know, him coming out and many other stories that people have done with him, I think, really have pronounced him as a character and how he struggles with himself more than anything else, because he's the one, right? Beast is like, sometimes he uses mutant as a sympathy card when he's <laughs> arguing with Vera, mm -hmm. but he's not actually that worried about it. This is the guy who's covered in blue fur, and he did that to himself, and it's fine, basically. He's on the Avengers. He does not care. Mm -hmm. Angel's out, you know, like Angel's the first mutant to come out on the X-Men, and Xavier has this dream, Phoenix... <laughs> 
does not feel bad about being a mutant, loves being a mutant, is the most powerful mutant, has a great time every day. And then you have Bobby, who truly hates himself on a wild level, like one that I don't think any of the other O5 can relate to. Cyclops is stern and serious and hard on himself, but I don't think he hates himself like Bobby does. No, and and I, I think part of that does speak to the fact that all of those characters had an early personality hook that they could hang themselves on mm-hmm. whereas I, I mean granted in the very early days Jean's personality was that she was the girl but they got through that at a certain point and she had a more specific personality and mm-hmm. with Bobby I think the fact that they tried to hang so many different things on him has made him a much more interesting and fully realized character than a lot of the others. Yes, 100%. And they don't have to do anything really, you know, people will say that him coming out was shock value. I don't think it was, but they don't really have to do anything shock value with him. Like, Hank is always outdoing himself on evil right now. (laughs) Right. Jean is like, has people who really like her in the X offices right now. So you're seeing some uh, personality development. Sometimes she'll have whole years where that doesn't happen. So this is exciting. And then you have Cyclops has grown leaps and bounds, right? So it's like, there's a lot of things where you just go, but they don't have to do that with Bobby now because we know who Bobby is and Bobby knows who he is. And it's kind of awesome, you know? (laughs) So I am hesitant to do this, but we've had our dessert of talking about Iceman (laughs) as a character. Now it's time to eat our, I guess in this case, vegetables mixed with, pencil shavings and (laughs) torn up photographs of our parents or whatever this story is yelling at us yeah (laughs) yeah uh let's talk about this series a little bit one of the first things that struck me in it was the portrayal of bobby's parents how compatible did you find this version of bobby's parents with the versions we get in other places yeah aren't they one of the wildest they're so strange they change a lot It's all a matter of like, oh, they're upset with me, but it's because they really care about me. And then there's times where they're just like flat out abusive. And you're like, Bobby, you've got to get away from them. (laughs) Right. And that happens even within this series. You see some of those fluctuations. There is some wild stuff going on in this series. It is 100% like that, though, where it's like there's scenes where they're just like, Bobby, you're perfect. As soon as he walks through the door and then he's there for like three seconds and they're just like, you look like shit, you know, like yeah, kind of one of those things where you're just like, they don't really love him, right? Like that's the read I got from this comic. They like love an idea of what their son should be. And that's why he tries to be that for them all of the time. And it like truly does like really hurt him. That's what I saw. No, that makes a lot of sense. I also think something else you said earlier about maybe the dream sequence is the only real part of it. It would make sense if what we are seeing in the rest of the series is just Bobby's perception of his parents, because there are some things that just don't seem to add up. If nothing else, like they seem so fucking old. Like, I know that there is, like, a sliding time scale in Marvel Comics, but even given that, which also has never made a ton of sense to me, they look like they are in their, like, mid to late 70s in this comic book. They are elderly. This is, like, the original takes on Aunt May age. Yeah, and 
Bobby is supposed to be, I think, a college student at this time or was very recently a college student and might be going back to college. I would put him at his early 20s at the oldest. And then you see flashbacks or not even flashbacks, I guess, time travel, maybe, except for then it all gets undone and it was all an imaginary story that was in a dream unless it wasn't. But also there was oblivion. (laughs) But they go back to the early 40s and they seem like they are in their 40s in the 40s yeah he says that he's 22 at some point and i'm like what that guy was not 22 what are you talking about that is a rough 22 that's like when james dean was a teenager and you're like no no you're not you're the foreman down at the mill and you're in your 40s i mean you're a good looking foreman at the mill in your 40s but come on yeah for sure that is like the vibe and you know, has this mustache. I think the mustache goes away. There's like a, their physical appearance changes a lot over time. Definitely. (laughs) You know, I think in like the Cena Grace series, they looked like they were probably about 40 and they were like a little bit like disheveled and having a hard time, like comfortable at home clothes, you know, Mm -hmm. or something like that. Whereas here they're just like, why are you dressed like that? You know? And like, yeah, we should wear a suit at all times. Weird stuff. Yeah. I don't know what to think about them. Well, I do know what to think about them, which is is that I have parents that I don't talk to. And sometimes I'm like, Bobby, you need to stop talking to your parents. Mm. (laughs) And like, that's informed by my own experience. But it also might be the truth because they seem pretty rough. And like, they're also extremely mean to you. And they're also a racist couple. Like they've been racist many, many times. Here, it's like, yeah, no, they are racist. I was like, oh, this is mostly, like, not about that. And I'm like, no, he totally has, like, a slur for Japanese people. (laughs) Yeah, I had forgotten about that until I reread it and was like, oh, yep, there it is. Okay. There you are. There's the seeds to the Cena Grace Bobby's parents. Right. And, yeah, this story does seem to come around on them and, and ends at a point with Bobby realizing that oh, they're just overprotective and they love me so much. That's their only problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, no. No. There was a really meaningful to me when I read it book that's by Louise Fitzhugh called Nobody's Family's Gonna Change. And in it, the main character realizes that her dad is kind of an asshole. And it doesn't forgive it or make it think that it's going to get better. And her dad is super sexist in it. And it is about her coming to that realization. And there was something that was really cathartic about reading that. And I I feel like having more of the idea that like, yes, they are your parents and maybe on some level you do love them, but that doesn't mean you have to be okay with who they are, I think is a really important message. And I think the one that more kids maybe need and Mm -hmm. kind of the opposite of one that you get a lot and one that you get in this story specifically. Because it's always they're still your parents. Yeah. And it's you like, just need to understand where they're coming from and then it'll be okay. That's the thing as a kid. You're just like, oh, you think I didn't give my parents chances. Like, yeah. that's wild. <laughs> like, your favorite person in the world is your parents, regardless of who they are whenever you're a kid, you know? And you see that in Bobby. I think he tries really hard. Through the whole thing, he's like, I want a relationship with them mm-hmm. so badly. There's like a whole page where he's just sitting on his bed being like i just want to be friends with them i don't know why they won't talk to me like a human being like it's been years like yeah you know i'm an adult and they just don't understand that i have autonomy and i'm my own person living my own life and uh 
yeah, he's not even out yet. They're like truly terrible. But that's the thing is a lot of the things that they say to him, I know that the mutant metaphor is supposed to in some ways encapsulate queerness, but Mm -hmm. it's like there really is no exaggerating how much this is a queer metaphor because of the way that they talk to him. Like you've decided to be a mutant. You know, you're putting yourself in this high risk lifestyle. Yeah. I don't know why you have to go outside and flaunt it. Like, you know, all of this respectability politics for like, Queerness, I guess, is like everything that they're saying to him. And in these scenes, there's even almost like that subtext that like, it's not just because he's a mutant, right? No. And I mean, I think you really get that underscored with the fact that he has his one cousin, Mary, who he's very close with. And I think she says at one point, like, oh, we've always known you were a mutant, Bobby. It's okay. And she is like the one supportive member of his family that he feels like he can confide in. I think that really does underscore the metaphor there. Literally, Mary is the one true ally. A lot of us are lucky enough to have them in our families. For me, my little brother Preston was always just like, my sister's gay. <laughs> like, <laughs> even whenever I wasn't there yet, I feel like he was like, my sister is gay. And like, it's fine. And I'll like, literally beat your ass if you talk anything bad about her. And that's kind of how Mary is here. Like, Mary gets him out of an awkward situation, is like, really serving as a buffer for him. And that's why I'm like, why don't we see more of her? Does she ever come back? I love this character. <laughs> no, she's great. But she doesn't even come back in this series. Yeah. I was sure that, like, their relationship was going to be foundational to this story. And she just appears in one scene to be a kind of exposition dump for Bobby. It does seem as though there are parts of the first issue specifically where they are trying desperately to infuse Bobby with a specific character. Like, he has his exposition dump to Mary, and then when he first meets Marge, who he is instantly infatuated with or mirage as we find out she later is (laughs) their whole relationship is just him confiding in her and you see that really that is what he wants in a relationship is someone he can tell his secrets to and just kind of dump out himself on yeah in in a way that I i think was revealing that it had very little to do with marge oh totally yeah you can even from Panel one, this man is like massively overcompensating. He's like sees her and is like, I'm in love in like giant letters Uh and literally tries to show off in front of her family, like collides with her, almost hurts her little brother, like Mm -hmm. who we think is her little brother. Right. But But yeah, he not only is like a show off, not only is he being a jerk, you know, but also he could hurt them like it comes really close to him hurting them but there's that scene after they collide that i want to talk about where bobby is in his iceman underwear and he's finding (laughs) clothes on the clothesline or whatever to throw Uh on and this old lady starts like yelling at him because he's putting clothes on and she thinks he's taking clothes off and she's like what the hell so she says don't try to fool me young man i know a sexual deviant when i see one And Mm -hmm. I was like, yo, (laughs) that's comic. (laughs) Like anytime somebody tells me Iceman being gay came out of nowhere, I'm going to be like, no, page 10 of this comic, this woman is calling Bobby a sexual deviant. And like he got clocked by his cousin, Mary, who 
clearly knows that he's gay. Mm-hmm. So that's happened in the first 10 pages. Well, I think that woman, too, is the mother of Officer Ralph Ratchet, who yeah. seemed like he was going to, like Mary, play a much larger role in this series. Totally. Like, I thought he was going to be an ongoing guy. But you do see Bobby assault the police officer twice. So he's halfway there to the North Star coming out. <laughs> I am gay. Puff. He punches a cop. He just needs to get the yelling I'm gay out there. Seriously. Ratchet is terrible beginning and end, but it is interesting that they like bring him back, right? They're like, but in the 40s, he was also terrible. But that's right. the end of the story. <laughs> right. His dad was also a jerk. Guess what? But I also, I think I was talking to you before we started recording. It's it's tough for me to remember what happened when. Yeah. But, you know, as we learn in this uh, comic book, time is a construct and whatever. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. It's not even real. Yeah. It's a flat circle. No, Nietzsche, you're <laughs> thinking of a clock. A clock is a flat circle. Stupid fucking <laughs> Nietzsche. But I think it's telling that the ostensible woman that Bobby is drawn to in this issue is not only not a woman, but it speaks to what you were talking about before about his internalized self-loathing, that what he finds the most attractive is this hollow shell that is just the projection of the idea of suburban normalcy. Seriously, it's so intense. You're just like, dang, Bobby. Bobby, you tell on yourself every day. (laughs) Right. That's the thing. Did you think that she was Crystal at first? I was like, is that Crystal from the Inhumans? Is this story about to get awesome? (laughs) I was hoping, but no. Wouldn't that be great if it was Crystal just ruining people's lives again? (laughs) Oh, she's the best at it. Obsessed with her. I've Crystal had like an ongoing 200 issue comic. I would buy every <laughs> issue if it was just real housewife style. She's a good mom. Like we can keep mm-hmm. it above board for a superhero comic. But also on top of that, she's just out here cheating on spouses, having a life. <laughs> and but, she never really gets like embraced like the film noir femme fatale that she totally is. At I every know. point is never really acknowledged. <laughs> You, it's like you get the whenever the femme fatale first appears and is just like, I'm just so innocent and everything I do is so innocent, <laughs> <laughs> like crying, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm just so sad because of how innocent I am <laughs> and how I never kill my husband. Um, then you have later, she's just like, yeah, I killed my husband. I'd kill him again if I could. I hate that guy. Not because he did anything. I just hate him. And (laughs) that's why I think like this is like Crystal. We lose a Crystal who gets to the second half of the movie, right? (laughs) I mean, she does try to kill Bobby by the end of the issue. So, you know, there is some parallel there. (laughs) Yes, this Crystal that we have here, this other Crystal, because she does kind of act like Crystal in in all the ways that count, right? Not convinced she's a good person, though. Oh, no. um... The the second, (laughs) by the second, or is it this? I can't remember if it's the second or the third issue of the book. I think it's the second issue because that's the one where they end up in 1895 England, which looks (gasps) so goddamn much like 1400s England. It's like, (laughs) you're living in a thatched roof cottage 
it's like this weird combination of modern suburbia and the fucking shire yeah like no this actually was during the bubonic plague (laughs) and you are not fooling me but it is the combination of the bubonic plague and that one episode of the twilight zone that had bill moomy in it that it's a good life where everyone is in fear of the psychic person who is creating their whole reality like there is that horror movie aspect to the story at that point where you see that marge's whole family knows that they are creations of her psyche and are terrified of her they are terrified of her and it rules you're just like this is terrifying but then also once again may i remind you of the cover he's young and he's trying to have fun (laughs) or whatever and then this is what we get to is marge is a psychic construction of her terrible father and then all of these other people are also psychic constructions by the psychic construction because i mean she's like his daughter right but she's not like, uh, I don't want to say she's not real <laughs> because it's comics, right? None right. of them are real. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of character. Like, she's a person kind of. Well, when you get the big reveal of who she is, I mean, first you have the reveal of who Oblivion is, and he's a lonely guy, I guess, <laughs> but who also does have a belt made out of human skulls. Sure does. And a big Skeletor hood and no face. And he is also the embodiment of Oblivion. And he talks about his siblings being death and I forget what the other one was. But you get the idea that he's kind of like a dollar store version of the Endless. But he's just lonely and he just wants a mate. And then you meet Mirage and she is his daughter and also his creation. And also the ineffable spirit of nothingness. (laughs) And also he does at one point say, and my mate, which is just like, what? Wait, so it it would be like meeting the Trinity and being like, we're the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. And we're all dating, too. Yeah, (laughs) It's like, what the fuck is happening? Like, hey, actually, I do have some questions. Um, (laughs) Like, wait, so did you just on panel say, okay, all right. Well, I guess Marge is making a little bit more sense as time goes on because (laughs) she's your wife, daughter. No. It is. And she, like Bobby at the end, does come to the realization that I love my abusive parents and I really need to embrace them. I know. They get so awful to him. So we can talk a little bit about how terrible they are even more because I feel (laughs) like that's a major part of this series is them being the absolute worst and Bobby being like, I guess it's my fault. And you're just like, I don't know if it is, buddy. Like, No, but it does seem like the book is taking the stance that it is his fault. Yeah. It's a weird perspective that it's taking. And yeah, with the whole mirage and oblivion and their whole strange fucked upness. have you read that dr fate miniseries i remember reading it not recently though so anything you have to say about it i'll be like oh that's interesting i don't remember that because i remember the artwork mostly Mm. i think yeah Um, i think it was keith giffen art right yeah 
I was reading about it, and it is about a 10-year-old who gets aged up to be a 22-year-old and lives in the same body as his stepmom, who he kind of has a quasi-romantic relationship with. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, reading the description of that did make me be like, oh, it's Oblivion. (laughs) Oh my god, it is Oblivion. Oh, those weirdos. Yeah. (laughs) They're so weird. Yeah, Uh, what a strange choice of villain. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, there are so many things about this series. I think that this series is something that, you know, it's kind of fun to read because you're just like, what is happening like so often in it? There's some salient stuff with Bobby and his, like, him trying to work things through mm-hmm. with his parents. I think that that's good. Overall, I don't know if I would call this a good series, but I think that it's so wild that it really defines a lot of comics of this time period <laughs> for me, where it's just like, this is completely off the rails. Reading the end of this, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, shit. Um, Issue four, huh? And then they woke up and it was all a dream. I forget where I was going with this. Yeah. And I think there might be some credence to that because uh, I'm going to read you this quote about the series from J.M. DeMatteis. It was my idea, so there's no one to blame but myself. I'll just say (laughs) that it was a mistake. (laughs) And that if it made any sense whatsoever, it didn't. It was due to Bob Budiansky. That was the case where the editor's input was really needed and Bob was a big help. So (laughs) I I think he started off telling a pretty interesting narrative. I know that he's really interested in Hindu mysticism and was a follower of a guy named uh, Maher Baba. And I think he might be putting some of that in here. I mean, you have a, I don't know, level boss, I guess, that is named Kali that has a bunch of arms and... I think another belt made out of skulls, something like that. The other hench people are White Light and the Idiot, which seem like they're a reference to something. It has to be. But it doesn't really fold together. Like, the first issue seems like it's setting up some kind of narrative. The second issue is that weird hybrid of Back to the Future and that episode of The Twilight Zone. And then the third issue is huge dream sequence, which has some super interesting stuff in it. I think I had kind of a negative reaction to it because I pretty recently reread the whole Steve Gerber, uh, Howard the Duck (laughs) series with my wife. And I'm just kind of oversaturated with that particular brand of weirdness right now. Oh, sure. And then by the fourth issue, it really was just a what the fuck is this? What are you trying to get away with here? Like, almost like a Steve Ditko level later zine of, here's <laughs> a bunch of weird philosophical stuff that is presented in blocks of text. Yeah, somebody's in the middle of a fight scene saying this. Right. Yeah. And I just kind of couldn't wrap my mind around most of what it was. I was making a joke about the Beatles earlier. But I'm literally stopped on a page where Bobby has a giant John Lennon poster Uh over his bed. He's got that subway poster in his room. It is enormous. Yeah. Can you imagine? He was going to sleep every night with this enormous John Lennon head right (laughs) over him. It is amazing that he was able to sleep. 
frankly. <laughs> like, what is that? And it's the only poster, right? Which is also truly an interesting design choice. <laughs> there were a lot of weird, interesting art choices. The character design of Oblivion, we talked about a little bit. It is, yeah. it is very like Pirates of Darkwater looking. Cartoonish, but also terrifying avatar of nothingness, but that you could totally see them making an action figure out of. Yeah, the, in the 90s, this would have been an action figure, right? right. Like, if it was, like, 1996. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this character would have appeared on the X-Men animated series if this was 1996. Oh, totally. And he would have a different colored cowl in each episode. <laughs> yeah. So that they could make the variant figures. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's just a creative choice. say something about there's the scene where when Bobby's parents first get very angry with him after the destroyed house mm -hmm. <laughs> there's like a house next door that just gets completely wiped out of existence which is honestly kind of funny mm -hmm. if it was your house you'd be like that's not great but you'd be like that is hilarious actually <laughs> But, I mean, you find out later it's a pretend person's Doesn't house, even so it's fine. Doesn't even and also, none of it ever happened unless it did. The things that his parents say to him, I think, are so wild. So his dad says, I've had it with you, Robert. Tonight, you brought your poison right to our doorstep, and I'll never forgive you for that, which is wild. Uh -huh. And then Bobby says, but dad... <laughs> And his mom says, let him go, son. He needs his rest. Bobby says, what do you mean? His mom says, your father's not well, Bobby. His heart isn't as strong as it used to be. This kind of aggravation, it could kill him. Please, Bobby, don't kill your father. <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby goes, mom, you can't mean. And she says, good night, son. He sits on his bed and says, leave it to mom to lay the ultimate guilt trip on me. <laughs> Maybe she's right. Maybe I am killing my dad. Ah, oh, that's ridiculous. But is it ridiculous? Just the fact that I'm a mutant has been an incredible cross for them to bear. I'd give anything to be normal. But I like what I am. But I hate what I am. Yeah. The characterization of that scene by itself, I was like completely blown away by. Because it's like, yes, your mom is terrible, actually. Your dad is terrible, actually. Like, going forward, it's really hard to sympathize with them on any level because of this scene. But then Bobby is sitting by himself, and his inner monologue is also fascinating because he is so torn between his different selves and just being like, why can't I just be normal? So yeah. that scene, I thought, was actually very worth reading. It was something that helped a lot. And then, of course. Well, and then he then does travel through time to kill his dad. He does. He, it, they do. They do follow it up by a quick time travel to kill the father. Oh my god! And he has. Oh, never mind. Not only the John Lennon poster, but there's a sign that says "Professor Xavier School for Gifted Children." I know. I think that this is supposed to be like a diploma or something, but it looks like it was like made in a preschool. So that's also really funny that Professor Xavier just like took a piece of printer paper and was like, da, 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 da. oh, totally. It's not even printed out on the dot matrix printer that makes like the banners with the little uh, paper with holes in the side. On <laughs> yeah. It. And like uh, uh, not um, even. an eight bit picture of a cake on it. 
Although I think that <laughs> diploma should have an 8-bit picture of a cake on it, because oh that God. is the level of accreditation that, that <laughs> Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Mutants should have. Like, exactly. you have to print out your own diploma, and it does have to be on a dot matrix printer. <laughs> I had a cousin who went to a Christian school that was only six people. And I was always like, either that's the X-Men or that's a cult. <laughs> I don't think it's an either or situation. I've read a few X-Men comics. That's an X-Men cult. Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. I know what is going on. There were so many weird things in this comic book. The fact that it's like somewhere in England, 1892, Days of Innocence. And it's like a lot of really terrible things happened that year and before that year. So I don't know if that was Days of Innocence. And in the year that you're portraying, which as we've talked about, is clearly the 1400s at the latest. <laughs> The dream sequence, right? We can't get out of here without talking about oh, the dream no. sequence. I'm scrolling trying to find it because I keep forgetting that this is actually a much longer comic than I think it is. It is so long. <laughs> it's like surprisingly long. It's really only 100 pages, but when you read it, you'll know what we mean, you know? There are whole sections of this. It felt like I was back in my high school math class where I was reading the textbook and I was like, I have just sounded out all of the words on this page in my <laughs> mind, so I'm going to count that as having read it, but I have no fucking idea what just happened. Yeah, I think we've explained it about as well as a person could, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that like we might hear like explain the X-Men do it or something, and they'd probably be really good at like saying every single thing in sequence. I'm sure they did. And honestly, I think I listened to their episode about this at one point, and it was probably really great because they're really good at their jobs. Yeah. In one ear, though, and out the other, as far as anything except for vibes go, because mm -hmm. this is one of the weirdest comics. So the dream sequence... This dream sequence goes for pages and pages. It's, it's most nuts. of the issue. It's most of the issue. And most of it's on like a blank black background, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like just fascinating. So he's in a crib as a grown man and he goes, wah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, isn't that so adorable? Like his parents are all goofy. And then his mom picks him up like he's a baby and like he's still grown size, but he's like goo goo. <laughs> And, it, and it, like the caption is like, goo goo, because it's like his mental, he like sees himself doing this and is like, goo goo, what is, what? So then she's dancing around with him and they're like, I've got such plans for you, Bobby. You're going to have everything your daddy and I have never had. Comfort, security, good schools, a good job. You're going to have such a wonderful life. And Iceman is shrinking the whole time until he becomes a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then he freezes his mom and kills her. That's page one. That's one page that I just described. All of that happens on one page. And then all of his various past teammates from all of the different teams that he's been part of show up and just berate him and tell him he's not shit. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so funny. Freaks of a feather have to flock together, says Warren, bird guy, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Beast is popping off saying ridiculous stuff. And the best line of the comic I love so much is when Cyclops says, We're the X Men. 
and we're mutants just like you. We'll never be accountants either. <laughs> and then Jean singing, by the time I get to Phoenix. <laughs> this is genuinely really funny. Like, yeah. that was hilarious. Like I said, taken on its own, this issue is a lot of fun or could be a lot of fun to read. <laughs> but when you try to make it fit into the narrative of a miniseries, it just is frustrating because... Yeah. The dialogue's really clever. The It is writing dream stuff pretty well. But when you try to put narrative onto that, it just won't hold. <laughs> like It can't. I, I read this biography of uh, Richard Feynman a while ago, who's a physicist. But he was talking about when he was a kid, he used to do this magic trick where he found these different chemicals that he could put them on his hand and light them on fire. And it would his hand would be on fire and it wouldn't hurt. And he was like, isn't this great? And then he tried to recreate that when he was grown up and got really terrible burns from it. Oh, my God. Because his uh, now he had hair on his hands oh, and it yeah. held the flames in place like wicks. This dream sequence, it's interesting. It's fascinating. But it has no wicks. The fire of narrative will not hold to it. Yeah. It just dances across the top of it. And when you are trying to put it in the context of what else is happening... It is maddening, or it was to me. Yeah, and the whole time he's having this dream sequence, you're like, buddy, I've read the comics that you're referencing. None of, <laughs> nothing even remotely like this happened. But it's like he's definitely just kind of doing like a slideshow, this is your life situation. I would be remiss if I did not mention that Dark Star makes an appearance <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in the dream sequence because he is holding out his arms going, I love you, while Hercules is holding him. And I thought that that was going to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Really seems like it should have. Like the art is telling me a thing that the dialogue said something different. But then it's like, no, I mean Darkstar. And Darkstar has her arms folded and is glaring at him, has the biggest hair I've ever seen. <laughs> And says, I don't love you, you capitalist pig, you money-loving exploiter of the masses, you accountant. <laughs> the worst slur anyone in this book can think of. I read the comic where Darkstar rejects Bobby as an issue of the champions. And all that happens is she prioritizes saving the world over saving him. And she still saves him, but it hurts his feelings so much. That he's like, you left me in the void for one second. And she's just like, I saved the planet. <laughs> and uh, also is just ignoring him. Like, she's like, I truly don't. I'm not even really reciprocating your flirting. Like, have you noticed that it's been like four issues? And then at the end, everybody's like, wow, you're such a great champion. And Darkstar's like, thank you. I think that you're great champions, too. <laughs> and Bobby's like, ah. I love that that is his interpretation of events, though. I know! She's like, you're a capitalist pig. I'm just like, this just makes me like Darkstar more, actually. The whole dream sequence, truly, as you're saying, don't read this comic expecting anything except for a complete disaster. <laughs> right. I would honestly recommend, I think, reading the first three issues of it, but read right. them separately and don't expect them to hold together once you make it to the end you're kind of just like i truly have no idea i think part of what is happening in it too is this is i think 1984 when this came out maybe 84 into 85 but miniseries were still pretty new at this point oh yeah especially miniseries that starred characters who were also in team books 
which you saw that happening with the Nightcrawler miniseries that I think came out at around the same time. They both take place largely in pocket dimensions. Yeah. And I think them trying to keep the events of this book separate from the consensus reality of the rest of the Marvel Universe maybe led to some of the narrative choices that were made or weren't made, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I think the other part is whenever you have a narrative where the stakes are either cosmic or metaphysical, it is really hard for me to see those as real stakes and get invested in them. Like, yeah, if it's one or two people's lives are at stake, that is super high stakes. If <laughs> there is a world at stake, that is somehow slightly lower stakes. It's like ninjas. Like, the more oh of them there are, the less dangerous they are. Yeah. And then once you get to, like, the whole universe could cease to exist, when the stakes are, if things go badly, then none of this is real. It's like, well, none of this is real anyway. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying because it's like the stakes are honestly higher in the first issue kind of than they are in the last one because at this point you're completely removed from like any sense of even like incontinuity. Right, reality. when the stakes are he might have his feelings hurt or he might have to <laughs> confront some realities about himself. It's like, oh shit. But when the stakes are like uh, reality might cease to exist, there is a part of me that's just like, good. Here's the thing. I accidentally just had to accept a truth about myself, which is that I do actually like the fourth issue. Oh, really? <laughs> because I'm going to talk about it because there is one sequence where Oblivion versus Bobby, right? And Oblivion says, the dance is done. All that remains is to dissolve this realm, return to my formless state. And, and Bobby says, you can't and he says what is this and bobby says you can't absorb me i won't let you absorb me wait is this bobby still or is this this is bobby right yes no it is for sure <laughs> i had to make sure <laughs> you can't absorb me i won't let you absorb me maybe everything you said is the truth maybe we're all just phantoms in a dream and then he like oblivion's like he struggles <laughs> he hangs on to life <laughs> And Bobby is like, but that dream has meaning to me. That dream has substance. That dream has love. That's the key, Oblivion. <laughs> love is the key. Like, love is all you need, literally. Uh -huh. It's the one thing that can't be wiped out no matter how hard you try. The one thing that you, for all your infinite power, can never understand. My parents taught me how to love. I don't know if that's true, Bobby. No. My father died in the name of love. Not really. No. And I refused to <laughs> let his life slip away. Okay, you're back on track. I've been so caught up in my own melodrama that I forgot about the promise you made me. You said that you'd set things right again. You'd save my dad if I did what you wanted. Well, I did it, and you're going to keep your word. Swallow me up for all eternity. Push me down into your infinite emptiness again and again and again, and I'll keep coming back. Do you hear me? For my mom, for my dad, and then it changes the page, and he is, like, punching the air, and this is his I'm gay punch the cop moment. <laughs> He is punching the air with both fists and he goes, for love! And you're just like, wow. And it looks like amazing. he is leaping out of Oblivion's out of Oblivion. forehead like he is fucking Athena. Yes. <laughs> it is a remarkable page and a remarkable panel. Like that honestly would not make a bad poster. Just yeah, Iceman exactly. leaping out of Oblivion's forehead and saying, for love! For love! 
Yeah, the art is like hit and miss for the series. As you were saying, I feel like it's like a little bit miscast, right? But there is some things I really like. Like he does a lot of Jack Kirby style stuff in the very opening of the comic. Like the place that Oblivion lives Mm -hmm. is initially like it's very dystopian and like, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis kind of like all Mm -hmm. of these like people who have to do the work and get none of the profits and they walk around in handcuffs and all of that. But there's a lot of really cool Jack Kirby style art because it's like very much like that kind of machinery, right? There is. And I feel like when Alan Cooperberg art is at its best it reminds me of a slightly less grounded walt simonson there's that same kind of economy of lines that are to it and almost an art deco look to it i think for the most part mike gustavich's inks don't do it a ton of favors but there are panels that look wonderful Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There, there is also there is one specific choice that was made, I think, with the inks. And I don't know why I kept coming back to it, but the Drake family rug is fucking nuts. Oh. What the hell is that? Oh, my God, actually. <laughs> what? I didn't even notice it. There's so much going on, but you're talking about like the wiggly wavy lines on a yeah. blue background, right? It, it looks like you are holding a, like, powerful electromagnet near a television screen that's showing (laughs) static but like it is so intricately done so much time was spent doing what i have to imagine is the inking of this bizarre random pattern on the rug and it shows up in three or four different panels like that it is just such a weird choice that is a weird choice. And they're like, go ahead, make the other part of the floor yellow and then make this part sky blue. And you're just like, what? It makes you think that maybe despite their advanced age and despite all of their other failings, the Drakes were super into psychedelia. And maybe they <laughs> are the ones who gave Bobby that John Lennon subway poster. <laughs> they're literally like, good night, son. John's watching you. <laughs> Don't do anything John Lennon wouldn't do. That actually leaves the door open for Pretty much. That that is a very short list. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and and that could be like, maybe they were just like, well, we put him up there because we like how he treats children and women, so. Yeah, so we've got this son and you know how it is. That'll be a good role model for you. The one thing that would lead me to believe that his parents were not huge Beatles fans (laughs) is that his dream sequence that he has when he has the worst nightmares of his life doesn't involve anything from Yellow Submarine. And I feel like if he had seen that as a child, then he would definitely be having nightmares about it because I sure do. Yeah, I think I like whenever I was a kid, I was always watching the weirdest psychedelic cartoons. And so it stands out to me. But I'm also like, I used to watch Unico a lot. Unico is wild. (laughs) You're just like, that is cute little unicorn. There's a world of pain around that character. (laughs) But I love it. I still love it. Like they just got finished bringing that character back in a comic series. And I backed the Kickstarter. But anyway, I would back the Kickstarter for Yellow <laughs> Submarine. Yeah. Just kidding. If you had a Kickstarter for that, I would sue you. But <laughs> <laughs> anything Beatles related does not ever come anywhere near crowdfunding. Thank you. No, but... no. I think it is telling. Like, I watched a video drum with my dad when I was 10, and Yellow Submarine was the thing that gave me more nightmares. Oh, honestly. yeah. 
I mean, you're just like, oh, I just have to join the new flesh in Videodrome. Right, right. And things seem actually like they get really good. (laughs) Right, psychosexual nightmares of dystopias? Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with that. We're already there. You got some body dysmorphia in there? Perfect. But, uh... I don't know, the Blue Meanies? Songs by George Harrison? (laughs) And then... (laughs) I have, like, a friend who is, like, George Harrison is his favorite person, so I hope to God that he does not listen to that joke. (laughs) I can't take it back. Eh, they were better than the Ringo songs. Fair. I wonder who who's Bobby's favorite Beatle. It has to be Ringo, right? You would hope. I mean, textually, I think we probably have to believe that it's John just because he does have that poster. But yeah. I, I do like to think that John is the one that his parents foisted on him. Yeah. But he likes Ringo best because he liked the movie The Magic Christian, which I think is super underrated. <laughs> yeah. And was written by Terry Southern who was the namesake of Candy Southern. Candy Southern. it all comes back to Candy Southern. Yep. I very recently was like, oh, dang, Terry Southern actually wrote like a bunch of film and TV stuff. I was like looking through and all had this like revelation because I was like usually just thinking of him as the namesake of the creation of Candy Southern. Right. Because he wrote that book, Candy, which was like his take on Candide, I think. Unacceptable. No, it's not a good book. But I will say uh, Red Dirt, Marijuana and Other Tales is a great collection of short stories. And he wrote some of my favorite movies, which are totally disparate from one another. (laughs) Like when you go through his filmography and you're like, wait, Barbarella and Easy Rider? Huh? Good point. I do love Barbarella as much as you don't want to commit to being that person in life. (laughs) Yeah. I'm also like, God, I truly love that movie. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It's just so good. I don't know what to say. And Dr. Strangelove, which is also really, really good. Yeah. Anyway. I wonder, (laughs) I'm like, I wonder if Bobby watched any of those movies. I believe that probably Candy Southern has a Terry Southern Film Festival at (laughs) least once a year. She would! That's what I love about her. She and, and totally like, not would. Not at her house. She would rent out a fucking theater. Oh, yeah, for sure. And just be like, get a load of this guy. I like his writing. <laughs> well, Sarah, one episode feels like not enough to cover all of this, but I also oh, yeah. feel like two episodes would be too many and eight would be not enough. <laughs> it's in that weird liminal space with that but i could not have asked for a better co-host for this journey through this weirdness thank you so much for joining us i had a great time talking with you about this series and about Iceman, and uh i really feel like i learned a lot from you and so thank you so much for joining us Oh, of course. I loved this episode. I love every episode that I've been on and always having fun chatting with you because I feel like we see these comics very similarly with a touch of affection (laughs) and also just being like, can you believe this? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. If people would like to find your work, and I am going on record as saying that they should, how would you recommend (laughs) that they go about doing that? Yes, I have all of these things to plug. I have had these projects coming because normally I say, check out the Bitches on Comics podcast, Mm -hmm. which you can listen to on all the podcast platforms. So go for it. Bitches on Comics. Very easy to find. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just type in bitches. And (laughs) (laughs) No, you do have to type in the rest. (laughs) 
I'm just going to say, the internet's a very big place. <laughs> Do not go to bitches.com. <laughs> so Bitches on Comics, mostly an interview podcast. As you said, there are three hosts now. One of my best friends on the face of the planet, Monica Estrella Negra, has joined us. We do a ton of interviews with mostly queer creators and women as well. And besides that, we do Decoded Pride, which is the speculative fiction queer anthology that we put out through, once again, decodedpride.com. Those are things that I would normally plug. Now today, (laughs) I can plug the fact that we're starting a narrative fiction podcast because I actually have a date for it. So... November 27th, we're going to start dropping episodes of a horror fiction podcast awesome. that is done by the queer spec people. So that encapsulates like the bitches on comics and the people who do Decoded. And we're going to do mostly weekly episodes, it looks like. I think we'll do seasons. So there will be like some breaks. But wow. for the most part, it's going to be weekly. We have a ton of stuff coming out. One of the things is going to be a Haunted Hotel ongoing series that starts on December 11th. So you can follow that podcast. It'll be under Decoded Pride Podcast, I'm guessing. I'm going to say follow us on Twitter at QueerSpec, or you could do the website of QueerSpec. But either way, that's just (laughs) Q-U-E-E-R-S-P-E-C dot com, right? So (laughs) good luck if that's not where you were supposed to go. But, you know, hopefully the show notes or something. Or follow me on Twitter. I'm Sarah Century. I probably will share the links correctly often. Excellent. Yes. (laughs) I'm so stoked to hear that. I can't wait to hear that show. It's been going on forever. Like, I've been working on this thing for, like, three years, four years, like, right before the pandemic started, and then everything exploded across all boards for everybody. So trying to make it happen has been, like, a project. Well, Weekly is so damn ambitious, too. That's so impressive. I'm really looking forward to it. I am a writer for Garden Plots with Skeletor, which is a scripted narrative podcast, but I have two other writers for that, and... We're bi-weekly with that. And then other than that, I do like one a year with the Haunted Disco Barn. So I am just in awe of being able to do a weekly one. And I can't wait to hear it. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Yeah, the thing that we're doing is to just keep it moving. Like we have a one-off kind of anthology format under like the Graveyard Orbit banner on the Decoded Pride podcast. And then we'll switch to like, oh, here's the other ongoing story. And then we'll stop for a while and do like filler episodes and like all of that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how we're counterbalancing it so far. But once again, it is an ambitious thing to say. So I'm always like... You never know, because Bitches on Comics started as weekly, and then we were like, bi-weekly, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, either way, it is a show that I'm very excited to check out and can't wait to hear. I've been absolutely losing it, being like, someday I'll be able to announce my wonderful project. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you were able to. Yeah! If... People would like to get into touch with me and Corey. We can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. I'm up on the interwebs, too, doing a thing, saying a thing. You know, (laughs) just living my life online, man. So you could <laughs> probably find me there somewhere. I don't really know how the internet works or that it does. But hey, yeah. if you can't find me there, there's one more place you can look. 
and that's deep inside your heart. I'll be in there. I always have been. Nope, that sounds creepier than I'd like it to. I'll be in there until I burst fully formed from your forehead like Iceman yelling for love. For love. That's our Valhalla for this episode is for love. And also that was like the way that we shared our social media presence sounded like oblivion. So I think that this comic has got to us more profoundly than I thought to begin with. I think you're right. I'll be combing pieces of it out of my hair for weeks. Sarah, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, just trying to chill, I think. You know, I've got a lot going on. You've got a lot going on. So I think I'm just going to try to make myself... <laughs> I have an alcoholic beverage I call the Sarah Century. <laughs> so... Would you mind sharing the recipe? Absolutely. I do ground ginger, like fresh ginger, mm-hmm. but take it over a grate. And, you know, that's to your own preference. How much ginger do you want in a drink? And then usually a ton of Irish whiskey, (laughs) Mm. a little bit of ginger beer, and then like a dash of orange juice is what I do. And then sometimes if you have like lemon around, lemon goes really good with it as well. Sarah Tiberius Century. That sounds amazing. (laughs) It's so good. I drink them all of the time and I love to just be like, (laughs) hey, I'm having a Sarah Century right now. Maybe you've heard of it. That sounds great. That's what I'm going to be doing in people's hearts this week. Drinking a Sarah Century and uh, going through the, it's come up on Twitter and we were talking about it before the show, but going through the 4,000 plus comics that I just inherited, which is the most wonderful burden you can possibly imagine. Yeah. I unearthed most of a run of X Factor in there. And so I'm going to check out some of those and see some uh, earlier Bobby appearances, I guess after the new Defenders, but. This discussion has made me want to read a lot more Iceman stuff. So yeah, I'm, gonna be I'm excited doing that. to hear about that because it's coming up on the show. So I'm very stoked. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Sarah. And uh, until next week, for love! For love! <laughs> also, <laughs> up against the wall, chauvinist pigs! <laughs> Valhalla! <laughs> I don't think Batman had one. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> no, he Batman. Should have. It's your mistake. That was the one. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. It's your mistake. And yeah, <laughs> punch out a super mounty while you're at it. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. And they knew it.